you turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 39 this Lord's Day as we uh, come now towards the end of our study in the book of Exodus. Today we'll be looking, really revisiting uh, what we learned earlier in Exodus in regards to the priestly garments that were to be worn by Aaron and other high priests to come and serving in the tabernacle. Uh, last Lord's Day, if you're with us, we looked at the building of the tabernacle and how all these instructions that had been given to Moses and the people were now being followed. And we talked about how it's not enough just to know God's commands, uh, but we need to obey God's commands. And we're reminded of that again today. Uh, back in Exodus chapter 28, uh, we see that phrase, shall make, in 19 different instructions regarding the priestly garments. And so God gives very specific instructions about you shall make, they shall make. And then we come to Exodus 39, and we find just as many times that word made, he made, or they made. Again, it's a reminder to us uh, that we need to obey God's word. And we see that obedience here. But there's much more that we're reminded of as we study uh, this text today, because it points us directly towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I hope that you'll see that as we walk through it this morning. Uh, again, like last Lord's Day, uh, there are lots of detailed instructions here in Exodus 39. So just by way of review, I'm going to read the first five verses for us together. So out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read the inspired Word of God for us. And this is what Moses recounts through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Exodus 39, beginning there in verse 1 in regards to the priestly garments. From the blue and purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place. They made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded. He made the ethod of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And they hammered out gold leaf and he cut it into threads to work into the blue and purple and the scarlet yarns and into the fine twined linen in skilled design. They made for the ephod attaching shoulder pieces joined to it at its two edges. And the skillfully woven band on it was of one piece with it and made like it of gold, blue, and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen as the Lord had commanded Moses." You would pray with me. Father, we are reminded of that phrase throughout this chapter, as you commanded Moses. Lord, you have given us commands today, but you have helped us to see that, that we cannot be saved through obedience to your commands. But once we are saved through the gospel, we're called to obey your commands. So, Father, help us to see how all of that works today. And help us, Lord, to understand how uh, these garments, which can seem uh, so different, uh, so obscure to some of us, help us to see how they point us directly to the gospel of Jesus and to how we're to live today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, as Matt mentioned earlier, yesterday was our uh, church yard sale for missions. And again, thank you to everybody who uh, donated to that, came to that, served at that. Uh, it's always a, a great event. In fact, uh, one of the things I enjoy about it is once we have all the, the stuff out there, is 
uh, particularly with the kids. When kids come in and they've got that, that money that they've saved up or that's been set aside or maybe a grandparent gives them a few dollars and they go running over to those toy tables. Uh, as I look through some of those things, they were reminders of some things even from my childhood. Uh, they were reminders to me of things from other people's childhood. If you saw any wrestling uh, stuff there, that's a good reminder of Pastor Matt's childhood and adulthood even. Uh, he loves wrestling stuff. Uh, but one of the things that, that reminded me of my childhood was some of the superhero things. Now, I realize today we've got all these superhero movies, but uh, there, there was a time when they weren't as full-blown as they are today, and there were just some simple little TV shows, and there were some things that went along with that. And, and one of my favorites was Superman. And uh, my parents can probably remember when I was little, uh, I had a, a Superman costume, and I had a Superman cape, which is really all you needed if you were going to be Superman. And if you remember the old TV show, that phrase, uh, is it a bird? No. Come on now. Is it a bird? No. Is it a plane? No. It's Superman. Right. So I'd put on that cape, and guess who I became? A bird? No. A plane? No. I, I was Superman. And all of that came crashing one day uh, when I realized I wasn't. Um, we were at my grandmother's house. And uh, I, I'm guessing her front porch really wasn't even higher than the stage here. But at the time, it seemed like it was about 13 stories in the air. And I put that Superman cape on, and I got back, and I remember thinking, it's a bird, it's a plane, no, it's Superman. And I took off, and I thought I was going to fly. And I did for about half a second. <laughs> and, you know, Superman, you got to stretch your arms out. So there was no bracing yourself. It was just face first against the ground. And, uh, and I was utterly disappointed. All my childhood dreams were crushed, and that was it. So let me pray for it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I, I realized that day, uh, what most of us should realize early on, is that you know, putting on a Superman cape uh, did not make me Superman. Uh, it was a costume. It was a piece of clothing. It was a garment. And when we come to passages like this one in Exodus 39, it's easy for us just to kind of go right past this and say, well, well this is just a costume. Uh, this is just kind of an outfit. And well, we assume there's probably some significance to it, but so often we don't stop to consider what that significance might be. And honestly, often we don't think of it as any more than, you know, putting on the superhero cape. That they were putting on some type of spiritual clothing. But there is so much for us to learn about what the high priest was putting on in this passage. So much that points us directly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some of which we've covered already in our study of Exodus. Some of which we'll be reminded of and covered today in our study. In hopes that we might better understand what it is today that we put on as followers of Jesus and so we're going to begin by looking at this depiction that we have here. In fact, I put in your worship guide there a little handout. This is just for your reference so you can kind of visually get an idea of what we're talking about when we're talking about these high priestly garments. Uh, but we'll begin with that first point there in your outline. This reminder that the high priest's garments showed that he was set apart to serve God. The high priest's garments showed that he was set apart to serve God. Now again, as you look to that picture there, you can probably already understand that this was not how the average Hebrew dressed. 
Um, Their clothing that they put on here set them apart. In fact, as we read through this passage, beginning in verse 1, we're reminded that even the material that the high priest's garments were made out of was the same material used for the tabernacle. This was to associate them, not just as being set apart, this was to associate them with God's tabernacle. One commentator said it this way, that that the, the priest's garments literally made him look like a virtual replica of the tabernacle. Another said the garments made the priest look like a mini tabernacle, part of the tabernacle structure in and of itself. And so when anyone was to see the high priest dressed like this, there was no guessing, there was no doubt that they indeed were associated with God's tabernacle. And as such, they were set apart for his service. And everything about the garments pointed to that. So, for example, if you look on your little picture there, number five, that the ephod. And I'm guessing most of us this morning when we were getting dressed for church probably didn't say, honey, where's my ephod? I can't go to church without my ephod. That's not even something we refer to today. But you can see there a depiction of what it is. And then in the scripture here, verses 2 through 7, it was a short, sleeveless vest that was attached by means of two shoulder straps. And on these shoulder straps, there were two very important stones. On each of these stones, there were written the names of six of the tribes of Israel. So when the high priest would go into the temple, they were carrying on their shoulders that picture of the people of God. They were carrying on their shoulders the names of the families of the people of God. And so when they went in, if you remember last week, when, they, uh, when just your average Hebrew went in to offer a sacrifice, that they couldn't go beyond that bronze altar. And so the priest would take the sacrifice and would go to the basin and wash their hands and would go there into that tent of meeting, that holy place. And ultimately the high priest would go into that holy of holies. And as they did that, they would go in representing the people of God. They would go in on behalf of the people of God, and those stones were a reminder of that. There's also a reminder in verse 8 there, and following to verse 21, in the description of the breast piece, as you can see there on your handout as well. This breast piece we learned in Exodus 28 was actually referred to as being something that helped the priests cast judgment. There was a little pocket in behind it, and in behind that pocket were these two sacred stones. It's debatable exactly what these were and what they were used for. Some said they were almost like dice, like casting lots. Others said they were just sacred stones, and somehow God used these stones with the high priest to help them in exercising judgment over the people of God. And so they represented that, and on that breast piece there was also a visual representation of the people of Israel. You had there these 12 stones, each one representing a tribe from Israel. And so the high priest, when they would go in again, on their shoulders and on their chest there were these representations that they were going on behalf of God's people. There was also a robe that you can see there in your handout. This was of symbolic significance. In fact, it was uh, woven from a single piece of cloth. Uh, This was to show the wholeness and integrity of God and the integrity he demanded from his priest. Uh, In it, ingrained in it, were these depictions of pomegranates. Uh, These were fruits that were filled with seeds. 
Uh, they were to represent the fruitfulness of God's people. Uh, then along with those, there were these little golden bells that were part of this garment. Now again, different commentators, theologians have debated on what these were for, but, but we know foundationally that uh, these were so it could be known when the priest was going into the Holy of Holies and when the priest was coming out of the Holy of Holies because you could hear those bells as they walked. Uh, then verse 29, there was a, a, a turban, and on that turban there was a golden plate that read, Holy to the Lord. Now again, that word holy means set apart. Uh, this was a reminder that the priest was set apart, that they were going before God on behalf of the people. And as they did that, they were going on behalf of the people who were themselves unholy. In fact, what we note as we study the priestly garments is that as much as they represented holiness and righteousness, uh, they represented a people who were unholy, and they were worn by priests that were unholy. So think, for example, about who's going to wear these priestly garments. It's going to be Aaron. Now, do you remember anything in recent chapters that Aaron's done that might be considered unholy? <laughs> exactly. And Aaron's the one who says to the people, well, hey, bring me all your gold, because they were anxious. Moses was away up the mountain. Bring me all your gold, get the earrings out, and I will make for us a God we can worship. And then when he's confronted with this atrocity, with this rebellion against God, you remember what he says? Well, you know, I just threw the gold into the fire and out popped this golden cow. He doesn't even take responsibility for it. And yet, this is the one who's going to be the first high priest. But it's not just Aaron that we see as unholy. Now, you continue on in the scriptures and you read about Nadab and Abihu who offered an unholy fire at God's altar and were destroyed. And so, the tension we see in Exodus and following is that we've got this, this elaborate garment that must be worn by the high priest that represents all these special things about God's people and special things about the priest, and yet they would be worn by someone whose heart still needed to be reborn. They'd be worn by someone who the Scripture says was born with a stone heart, someone who needed a heart transplant, someone who needed a faith in God that could only come through an act of God and through the Spirit of God. They would be worn by fallen people. In fact... We're reminded of the fallenness of those people as we study this whole sacrificial system. Because it was the high priest who would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people. But what we learned when we studied Exodus 29 is that the high priest also had to offer a sacrifice on behalf of themselves. Because they too were sinners. Isaiah, excuse me, in Exodus 29 we read that a bull and two rams had to be sacrificed. That bull was for the sin of the people, but those rams were for the sin of the priest. And then this gets even more complicated as you study through the Scriptures and you find that the blood of those rams and the blood of those bulls, that didn't atone for the sin of man. That that didn't appease a holy God. In fact, the prophet Isaiah says it this way on behalf of God. God says, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so the question is, what is God doing here? 
And why would God go through this elaborate structure of the tabernacle and all these priestly garments if these sacrifices that were being offered could not atone for man's sin? And we find the answer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because all of these things were pointing us forward to Jesus as our great high priest. Which brings us to the second point there in your outline, point two. Jesus is the great high priest who served God perfectly. See, this is why it's so important to be a student of all the scriptures. This is why it's important to read the Old Testament in light of the New and the New Testament in light of the Old because you see how all this comes together. In fact, the writer of Hebrews puts these pieces together for us when we consider how Jesus is our great high priest. We read this in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Now the point in which we are saying is this. We have such a great high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The writer of Hebrews is saying all these things were to point for us to Jesus, who is indeed our great high priest. See, back in Exodus chapter 28, when God describes those priestly garments for the first time, He uses three words to describe them. He says they're to be holy, they're to be glorious, and they're to be beautiful. And we see in the Gospels, we see in the New Testament, how Jesus is the one who is truly holy, truly glorious, and truly beautiful. Jesus is indeed holy. Hebrews 7.26 for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a great high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is the one who is perfectly righteous. Jesus is the one who doesn't need to offer a sacrifice on behalf of himself because he's perfect and without sin. And he can offer himself then as a sacrifice for us. Hebrews 7 continues in verse 27 to say this, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so the picture here is that Jesus is the great high priest. He was the perfect sacrifice offered for sin, and that sacrifice is finished. It was offered once and for all. And so that's why this morning, as you come into Bloomfield Baptist Church, we don't have a depiction of Jesus on the cross. Because Jesus is done with the cross. Jesus died once and for all on the cross. He was buried in the tomb. He was raised from the dead. And He reigns on high. Well, we don't believe or preach anything about perpetual suffering of Christ. Christ suffered once and for all. And His work is indeed finished. He is the one who is holy. He is the one who we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake God made Jesus to be sin. He knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we see on the cross this wonderful exchange. Jesus who deserves no death, who never sinned, dies on the cross for you and for me, who indeed have sinned 
and do deserve death for our sin. And in exchange, we receive Christ's righteousness. It's a beautiful offer in the gospel for all those who will believe and for all those who will repent. It reminds us that Jesus is not only holy, but that Jesus is indeed glorious as the garments of the high priest pointed. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. John chapter 1 verse 14 says that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father full of grace and truth. And so we see how the priestly garments were to be holy and glorious and beautiful. How these point directly to Jesus who is holy, who is glorious. And then the scripture tells us who indeed is beautiful. Everything about the tabernacle, everything about the priestly garments points towards the beauty of Jesus. And so if we've, as we've looked before, there was that golden lampstand. Well, Jesus is the true light. There was that table for bread. Jesus is the true bread of life. There was that bronze altar. Jesus is the true and better altar. He is the holy, glorious, beautiful high priest who represents us before God. And so think again about this, this picture we have of the high priest. The high priest would go before God with the names of the people of God on his shoulders. Jesus Christ goes to the cross literally bearing your sins and my sins on His shoulders. It's a beautiful picture of what's accomplished through the Gospel. In fact, if you look at the crucifixion and resurrection and the book of John and you compare that with what we read here in Exodus 39, you see how these things come together. For example, in John chapter 19, it says the soldiers put a crown of thorns and a purple robe on Jesus to mock Him. Well, how does that relate to those priestly garments? Go back to Exodus 39, verse 22. The high priest would wear a robe that was blue. The Hebrew word actually means it was made out of purple wool to represent royalty, which is exactly what they were putting on Jesus. John chapter 19, verse 23, the soldiers, once they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. That's exactly how we see in Exodus 39, the priest's robe was made seamless so that it would not tear. All these things help us to see how Jesus is the great high priest who served God perfectly. See, friend, on your best day, and on my best day, we cannot serve God perfectly. On your best day and my best day, we cannot meet God's standard perfectly. Friends, we can't even meet our own standards perfectly. When you think about goals you set for yourselves, do you perfectly achieve those goals? <laughs> I'll be glad to follow you around January 1st, 2nd, and 3rd when you join that health club and see how you do. I mean, we have goals we set for ourselves. We have standards we set for ourselves. And we can't even follow those standards. Now, there might be things that some of us do okay at. So if I were to go through this room today and I were to say, okay, one of the standards our government has set is a speed limit. And out here on the parkway, here's the speed limit. And out here in front of the church, here's the speed limit. 
that maybe there's somebody in this room who would say, oh yeah, I've always perfectly obeyed the speed limit. But that would not be me. And I'm guessing that would not be most of you. Friends, if we can't even obey a speed limit, what makes us think we can obey the perfect, righteous standard of God? And here's the twist. Why would we even want to try to fully obey the perfect, righteous standard of God? Because we have one who has obeyed it on our behalf. We are compelled to obedience in light of the gospel of Jesus. But what makes us ever think that somehow we're going to achieve righteousness on our own? All of this points us towards how Jesus is the holy, glorious, beautiful high priest who has served God perfectly on our behalf. And therefore, our salvation is not something we trust in ourselves for. It's something we trust fully in Christ for. In His finished work on the cross. That's what the high priest's garments point us to. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is this, that while those garments were to set apart that high priest, and while they were pointing us towards Jesus, our great high priest, that once we come to know Christ through faith and repentance, well, God uses us as His servants, and He actually refers to us as priests. Which is that final point there, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table together. Point three. In Christ, we are now priests set apart to serve God. That that is the word that the New Testament uses to describe you and I this morning who are followers of Jesus Christ. It refers to us as priests. 1 Peter 2, chapter, nine, or chapter 2, verse 9. But you, speaking of us who are Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Now this is what Martin Luther, the great reformer, referred to as the priesthood of all believers. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, the Scripture says you indeed are a priest of God, and therefore you are called to serve God. The Scripture tells us that we are set apart to live holy lives. And this is an area where I fear there is great confusion in the church today. Because it seems we have these two extremes we go towards. On one end, there's this work-based salvation. And this is for those of us who may be very quick to say, Oh, I believe in Jesus. I trust in Jesus. I walk the aisle. I got baptized. I'm saved once and for all by Christ and Christ alone. And yet, deep down, we feel like we still have to do something to earn our salvation. We feel like we have to do something to earn merit before God. And here's how we see this. You lay your head down tonight and you're about to go to bed and maybe you haven't had a very good day. And maybe you have a bad day. And maybe you get in your car and it won't start in the church parking lot. Or maybe it does start and you get out there and you didn't heed my warning about the speed limit and get a speeding ticket. Or maybe a car breaks down, or maybe a kid gets sick, or maybe just bad things after bad things happen, and you lay down at night and you begin to think, I don't think I paid attention to what the preacher said today. And some of y'all are going, maybe I'm not. And then, I, you know what, I, I didn't read my Bible today. And you know, Lord, I, I didn't pray very much today. 
you know, God, I bet all these bad things happened today because I, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I'm tomorrow morning when I wake up, I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to pray. And you know, I, I, I don't know that I gave enough yesterday. I'm going to go make that right. I'm going to do all these things so that maybe all these bad things won't happen. Friends, if that's your thought process, then you may be very well slipping into this works-based righteousness. Because you're attributing your standing before God and His work in your life to what you have done. Now don't get me wrong. We, we are called to obey God. We're called to read His Word. We're called to pay attention to sermons. We're called to give to His church. We're called to do all of these things. But if you think those things are going to save you, that's not what the Scripture teaches. It teaches those are things we do in light of being saved. And what we're reminded of from the Scripture is that we are now priests who, now that we have been saved, we are called to serve God. And so on one hand, we need to pull away from this notion of works-based righteousness. And then on the other hand, we've got folks who fall just as far over here and think, well, you know what? I don't need to work to be saved. Once saved, always saved. I walked an aisle, I prayed the prayer, and now I can just do what I want. Now maybe you don't say that, maybe I don't say that, but that's exactly how a lot of us live. Well, I'm saved, I'm good, I've got my get-out-of-hell-free card, I've got my eternal fire insurance, I'm good. And we pull back so far from this works-based righteousness that we forget that true righteousness should result in works in our life. And we forget that God has set us apart. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness. 1 Peter 1, verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, what we're being called to here is the reminder that there will be times as a Christian when we will look back on our sin and we will long for it. Well, we will look at it and think, you know, I liked that. I'm kind of tempted to do that again. You know, for all my attempts at Christian living, that's when I was really happy. And you know what the Scripture calls that? Is the passions of our former ignorance. And we didn't know any better. And now we know the Gospel. And now we can live in light of the Gospel. And what that means is that the Gospel calls us to continual repentance in our life. Repentance isn't just something you do once and you're done. Repentance is an ongoing process in the life of the believer. Repentance is when we are moving towards sin and we make an about face and we run the other way. Because if we continue, there is imminent danger in front of us. I've shared a story before about a friend of mine, Hank. He was with his family uh, up in Gatlinburg for a family vacation. And if you've been to Gatlinburg, you know they're on that main strip. You've got cars coming and going, coming and going. And his, his young boy was there with him. And, and some of you have had this experience where they just turn for a second and turn back, and their son was just running full speed right towards the traffic. 
Except this wasn't one of those, you know, Gatlinburg, July, traffic's moving half a mile an hour or so many car days. That this was early in the morning where there wasn't much traffic. And as he saw his son running towards the road, he looked up and he saw a car just barreling down the road. And he just yelled as loud as he could, Son, stop! And he said in that moment, his boy just turned around and got scared, kind of teared up, but he ran right back into his daddy's arms. Friends, that is a picture of biblical repentance. So many of us are running full speed ahead towards imminent danger and there is a barreling vehicle coming down the road and we don't see it because we got these blinders on and we think, no, my sin makes me happy. No, I enjoy this. No, this pleases me. No, I wouldn't be this happy if God didn't want this for me. We ignore what God's Word says. We base everything on what our heart feels and we're running towards danger and God says to us, stop. Turn around. And come to me. God's desire is the desire of a father to protect and to provide for his children. But so often we see repentance as if God is some universal killjoy. God doesn't want us to be happy. Now friends, God wants you to experience a joy far greater than your sin can ever provide you. But it starts with repentance and as we come to the word of god this morning we're reminded of that need for repentance in our life scripture tells us that we're to do all that we do for the glory of god but you can't begin to glorify god until first you repent and turn from your sin friend have you repented and if you have repented it is your life bringing glory to god today Is your speech bringing glory to God? Are your actions bringing glory to God? Does the way you conduct your business bring glory to God? Does the way you treat your family bring glory to God? Does the way you respond to the highs in life or the lows in life, does that bring glory to God? Does your suffering bring glory to God? The Scripture tells us that in whatever we do, 1 Corinthians 10.31, we are to do all for the glory of God. And then the Scripture also reminds us as we see this picture of these priestly garments which were holy, set apart, which were beautiful. And in Christ we see that beauty. It reminds us that we too, as priests of God, we have a chance to reflect that beauty as well through sharing the Gospel. Romans chapter 10.15 says this, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See, we call others to repentance. Not because we don't want them to have fun. Not because we don't want them to have a good time. But because we want them to experience the true beauty, the eternal joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The scripture said that's the most beautiful thing we can do. That's the most loving thing we can do. Because we are priests called to serve God. And we serve God when we tell others how they can know God through Jesus Christ. And we're reminded of all of this as we come to this table together. The high priest's garments show that he was set apart. Jesus, our great high priest, he, he was holy and set apart. 
in Christ, we are called to live lives that are now set apart and look far different from the world. We come to this table as a people who are set apart. See, this table is just for those who are professing followers of Jesus. That this isn't just for anybody who wants to receive it today. That this cup and this bread are for those who have heeded the Scripture and responded to it, who believe in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, who have confessed Jesus as their Lord. If you've made that confession, that profession, if you've repented and placed your faith in Christ, then you have been set apart and this table is for you as a priest this morning. This table is also a reminder to us that as priests of God, we don't need special clothes this morning. (laughs) We don't need to put on anything special. Why? Because the Scripture says we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's our special clothing today. And we come to this table as a reminder that we don't even belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to Jesus. And we've been covered by His blood and by His righteousness. This table is a reminder to us that our perfect high priest has made a way for us to enter into God's presence. Remember the whole point of the tabernacle was for God to dwell among His people. That This table is a reminder to us that one day for those of us in Christ, we will dwell eternally with God in a new heaven and a new earth. And we'll come to the table with Him there. And friends, there's going to be more than a thimble of juice and a little chiclet cracker. It's going to be a, fe- a feast with our King. But the way we get there, that the way we're able to sit at that table is through repentance. And friends, if you're unwilling to repent, then it's not just this table you shouldn't come to. There's another table you won't be able to come to. We can only feast with the King if we will repent and turn from sin. There's a lot in the book of Revelation that seems mysterious to us. Uh, There are things in the book of Revelation that are difficult at times for us to understand because of the way it was written, because of the allegory there. But there are some things in the book of Revelation that are crystal clear. And one of them is this. Revelation chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. God says this, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. God loves us, so He reproves and discipline. Why? Because He desires our repentance. I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. We are invited to come to the table, but we first need to repent. And friend, if you're unwilling this morning to repent, then the Scripture says if you receive this bread and this cup and you're unwilling to repent of sin in your life, then you're heaping judgment upon yourself because you're denying the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ at the very time that we are celebrating the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so don't get me wrong, this table this morning is not for perfect people. (laughs) This table this morning isn't for everybody who can say, you know, I've done everything right today and this week. No, this table this morning are for broken, messed up people who know how bad we're falling and who know how messed up we are, but our trust is in a perfect Christ. 
And if your trust is in a perfect Christ this morning, then we invite you as our time of response, our time of invitation today, to receive the Lord's Supper with us. And so with that, we're going to transition into the Lord's Supper. I'm going to invite the deacons to come forward. And then I'm going to walk us through each element of the Lord's Supper together. As a reminder, uh, we celebrate this meal out of remembrance. Uh, we're remembering what Jesus has done. We're remembering what Jesus is doing. And we're remembering what Jesus will do. And so as we come to this table and we take this bread and we take this cup, we do it to remember. And we begin with the bread. We've studied in the book of Exodus about the Passover and about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The unleavened bread represented for the people a reminder to them that when God delivered them from Egypt, He did so so quickly. He did so with haste. He did it so fast that there wasn't time for the bread to rise. That's why we take unleavened bread when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's out of this remembrance of this meal and this remembrance that when God moves, God moves swiftly. And so this morning, the invitation is for us to repent. And there's no clock on that. God doesn't say, repent, and I'll get around to you sometime. No, God offers His forgiveness and His grace and His mercy right here and right now. And He calls us to repentance. And so as the deacons prepare to distribute this bread, if you're receiving the Lord's Supper with us today, if you'll just take the bread and hold it, we're going to receive it together. I'm going to read the scripture, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll receive it. Between now and when you receive it, I would ask that you be prayerful, that you be repentant as we sing. This is a great opportunity to go before the Lord, as the scripture says, to, to confess your sin, to trust in Christ. And if there's an area that God's made you aware of through the power of His Spirit, something in your life, an attitude, an action, something you need to repent of, then friend, do that now. Go before Him now. And just as swiftly as He delivered His people, He offered that deliverance to us this morning.